Nine Podcasts. This is Ross Recommends with Ross Stevenson. I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. We've dived right into season two of Ross Recommends. We've got some rich recommendations for you today as well. Instead of spending all your time going back and forward, a bit of indecision about what to do, maybe I can help with a recommendation. I've got big and small. Some may take you across seas, others just to your couch. Take what you like, leave the rest. Today, we've got something to watch, something to listen to, and somewhere to visit. Every day. Today I've got a recommendation for something that has had me glued to my couch. Not just me, but just about everyone in my family. And with me to discuss it, a sporting statistic tragic who loves it every bit as much as I do. I'm talking about the man who's in my ear five mornings a week on the 3AW Breakfast Program, the audio genius, Damien Tardio. And we are talking about the same show that we've both fallen in love with, documentary essentially called Welcome to Wrexham, which you can watch on Disney Plus now. Damien, how good? Elite. Yeah. I liken it to almost Ted Lasso and the Mighty Ducks in on steroids pretty much. So Ted Lasso, for those of you who don't know, is on Apple TV. It follows an American NFL coach who goes across to the UK and coaches fictional Premier League team Richmond. If all those attractive people with their amazing apartments and interesting jobs, usually in some creative field, can go through some light-hearted struggles and still end up happy, and so can we. And on this occasion for Welcome to Wrexham, it's about two Hollywood superstars, Ryan Reynolds, who you know as Deadpool, and Rob McElhenney, who's starred in a lot of TV shows and films. And they both purchase this struggling fifth division Welsh football club called Wrexham. And it is amazing. They uh, they just come across as the best blokes on earth. Um, Ryan Reynolds, well more well known to me than Rob McElhenney. They buy the club and it dawns on you, or it dawned on me from the start, ah, part of the way they're funding the buying the club is by doing the Netflix documentary, which is sort of fly on the wall and follows them. And initially, it's about the reaction of the people of Wrexham. It's their footy club. How do they feel? What was the connection between you and Wrexham Football Club? We had no direct connection. It was just a feeling. What me and my dad thought was because Wrexham's red... Deadpool's red. That's the real reason. Sorry. Yeah, and that reaction is pretty fascinating to watch. I mean, I'd liken it to Russell Crowe buying your Hawthorne football club. How would you feel if he came in? What changes is he going to make? These are rusted on supporters who live in the area and have supported the club for generations. And now this club is, you know, right down the doldrums of the English Football League pyramid. And they're thinking... What do these guys want? Are they going to come in and bulldoze the stadium and, you know, build apartments there or, you know, turf us off and sell us? But watching how the supporters and Rob and Ryan interact with each other (laughs) at the initial meeting is quite fascinating because you think, geez, you know, what are these guys up to? Well, they're in fifth division, so they are a long way from the EPL. Yep. So in Uh, context, fifth division is the National League and then you go into the English Football League, which constitutes of the Premier League, the Championship, League One, and then League Two. So 
the, the National League, which Wrexham's in, that's the fifth division right on the bottom. Yeah, and when they start to play games, I mean, you get to terribly emotionally involved, don't you? Wanting Wrexham to win for the people of Wrexham, but for for, for Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney. You want them to win. Well, yeah, I mean, before watching the series, you th- probably never heard of Wrexham, and then by episode five or six, you're rooting for them and hoping that they can get the job done and, you know, eventually put up a fight to get promoted. And then obviously Ryan and Rob, you know, you you get insights into how they make decisions on behalf of the club, you know, trying to – there's there's one particular – episode where they need to get the pitch relayed and, you know, the amount of money that they've spent to get the new turf laid and it's, you know, obviously blowing their budget of the Scheisenhausen and, you know, the, the whole, um, just the whole passion that is involved with these two guys who buy the club and then, you know, having to make the decisions like relaying turf. Now, I wonder what your approach is. My approach is I only know what is happening to Wrexham FC through the documentary. I refuse to look up results in the paper. I don't know how they're going because I want the revelation to occur to me when I watch season two, assuming there is going to be one, of Welcome to Wrexham. So I, I, I don't actually check on their progress. Well, it was easy for season one because obviously no one had heard of them, but mm. because of the TV show and the well, the you know the, the, the new newly found success of the club – it's a bit hard to avoid it. I mean, if you want to... All right, let go, go on. All right, tell me. How are they going? All right. Skip this part of the podcast if you don't want to be spoiled. But yeah. in January, they played in the FA Cup. They made it to the fourth round. They uh, had to draw against Sheffield, but then they were they lost in the replay. But they almost went on a magical sort of cup run. And obviously, if you know the FA Cup, it involves all the association football teams and... Wrexham on the bottom played a championship team and they beat them. Yeah, right. Okay. So is there going to be a season two? They did announce at the conclusion of season one that season two was in the works. So I presume season two will obviously be a follow-up and a documentation of this 2022-23 season campaign. I wondered sometimes when I look at it whether they have an exit strategy. I mean, are they going to be doing it in 20 years' time? Or will they perhaps have sold the club back to the local community or something? Well, I mean, if they're anything like Silvio Berlusconi, he was in charge of AC Milan for about 27 years, and he's just purchased another <laughs> a, another club now, you know, Bunga Bunga Parties and winning Scudetto. So, I don't know, maybe they might be in charge in 20 years' time, but they seem like the blokes who actually would stay in it for the long haul. Yeah, and I wonder whether it's got a movie in it. Well, I think... Given given the given the success of it, I reckon if they were to get close to the Premier League, there is definitely a movie in it, and I think it'll be of it'll, it'll be highly anticipated. Interesting, you mentioned Ted Lasso because is it the player Paul Mullins, the the the, the striker that they sign? Yeah, Paul Paul Mullins. Paul Mullins is the striker that Wrexham signed in season one. He's one of the big name recruits that you sort of follow his trials and tribulations throughout the season. And then obviously in Ted Lasso, they have a similar sort of, you know, recruit. And they got the old campaigner, Roy Kent, and who's almost a play on, um, you know, sort of their fictionalized players based on real players. When I was looking at Paul Mullins, you get the feeling that you are actually watching a a fictional thing. And then you have to shake yourself to say, oh, hang on, no, no, this is actually, Paul Mullins is real. He is a real player. And he's a pretty good player too. Yeah. Mullen, left-footed effort. Oh, ho, ho! 
Not a waste of money. So were you raised on... I was raised on soccer. When I grew up in Melbourne, there were two shows on Saturday morning on separate channels about uh, what we now call the EPL. I think there was Star Soccer and the Big League. I don't know that kids are being raised... The, I'm raising an Arsenal supporter. He's only 11. Um, are kids getting exposure to the EPL that perhaps I got? Oh, definitely. I think with the advent of pay TV and the streaming services, you can watch the Premier League wherever you want. And that's the thing. Back in the early 90s when I first started following football, the Italian Serie A was the preeminent league in the world and it was overtaken by the EPL solely because of the fact that it was accessible via Foxtel and later on Optus Sports. And I mean, when I first started watching football on TV, we had the World Game on a Sunday afternoon, which that's sort of fallen down by the wayside on SBS. But with Optus Sport and Fox Sports, there's sort of been a new breed of supporter who has been born out of that. I was sitting last night watching the television with my 11-year-old son, uh, and we were watching Paris Saint-Germain play, and it was Mbappe and Messi kicking the ball to each other, enabling each other to score goals. So where does... Where does the French League sit in the pantheon of world uh, football competition? Well, the Ligue 1, I think, well, interesting, because when Lionel Messi was leaving Barcelona to go to Paris Saint-Germain, I think one of the pundits likened it to Messi going to a farm league. But I wouldn't say it's that bad. It's pretty good quality. The problem is you've got that talent vacuum that's all gone to Paris Saint-Germain. And it's like, you know, all the star players up against the wall and the captains picked them all to play for PSG. Yeah, well, the opponents, I think they were playing, is it Olympic Marseille? Yeah. I think they were playing, they were, they were like witches' hats. And Nantes and, uh, and uh, Toulouse and all those teams. And they're just like witches' hats against Messi and Mbappe. I found myself in the south of France at one stage with uh, my Sarah, and uh, it was my birthday. And unbeknownst to me, she had bought me tickets to go to Nice to see Nice play Lens. And the coach of Lens was a player I'd seen growing up playing world so called Papin, yeah. who played for France growing up. Watching Nice is a play in the football is like going to watch like, Turak play. Everyone is beautifully dressed. They have a light, uh, a light knit although, draped, although draped the, over their shoulders. The Nice Stadium is akin to a drive out to Waverley Park. It's not, it's, it's not close to you know the, <laughs> the, the the beaches of Nice. It's quite far. It's a, quite a drive. When are we going to see season two of Welcome to Wrexham? I presume season two will come out August September. So when this season's finished, this season will be finished in May. So obviously it'll have to go into post production, but definitely season two, probably August, July, uh, July August, but. What I would recommend in the meantime, go back and watch a show called Sunderland Till I Die. That's what Welcome to Wrexham was inspired by. That's on Netflix. It's a sort of peep into the Sunderland Football Club. A few other recommendations is one on Netflix called Diego Maradona. It's a feature-length movie, and it's based on archival footage of Maradona's time in Naples, which is quite fascinating to see the rise of this superstar playing for Napoli and then how he was dragged in by the mafia and obviously was, you know, led down a pretty dark path. And another one on ESPN 30 for 30, which you can find on KO, uh, it's called the 17th of June and it follows the events of happenings on the 17th of June, 1994. On that day, the United States had the FIFA World Cup getting underway OJ Simpson was being chased by the police and Arnold Palmer competed his final round of golf. And this documentary follows those series of events on that day. I remember when the Americans got the World Cup 
uh, unless I'm making this up, that the Americans said, we just want two things when the, when the uh, World Cup is played in America. We would like to abolish the offside rule and we'd like to make the goals 50% wider because <laughs> they thought that would lead to greater scoring. And they, they didn't get their way. Ridiculous. Um, so I take it that's what you've recommended back to me? Yes, I've recommended that back to you. And also one other one, oldie but a goodie, The Year of the Dogs, a 1996 documentary following the Footscray Football Club, Terry Wallace, that famous line, Oh, spew up! I don't know about you guys. Like, if I see one bloke walk out of here getting a pat on the back from people out there for a good effort, I'll spew up! Yeah. That comes from there. It's a great documentary, and uh, you can stream that on comparetv.com.au. You beauty champ. I'll see you at 5 o'clock tomorrow morning. Thank you very much. Listen to Ross Stevenson every weekday on 3AW Breakfasts from 5.30. It's a long way to the top. Next, I have a genuine recommendation, and with me, someone I've chosen for two reasons. My recommendation is for bagpipes, um, and I guess by that I mean the Scottish bagpipes. I, should, I, I can be ecumenical and throw in the Irish bag, bagpipes as well. We played a song on our radio show, 3W Breakfast, the other day with bagpipes in it, and I immediately said to uh, Amelia here, oh, no, I've got to recommend the bagpipes. Bagpipes are beautiful to listen to. And then I thought, I know who to talk to about the bagpipes. I'm going to speak to one of the blokes who paid bagpipes on the back of a truck when it was going down Swanson Street in the city playing Long Way to the Top by ACDC. And that man is Kevin Conlon, who's also a bagpipe player from the Rats of Trebrook Pipe Band. Nice to speak to you again, Kevin. Good morning, Ross. Hey, um, let's go back to the ACDC. How did that all come about, that you ended up uh, playing the pipe? Well, Bon Scott himself, I think, was either playing the pipes or pretending to. Yes, that's true. Well, I was the secretary of the uh, pipe band at the time in 1974, and uh, Bon Scott had come down uh, to Melbourne to make a recording for It's a Long Way to the Top uh, for Countdown. The original recording, the bagpipes on that were synthesised. They're not real bagpipes at all. Ah. So because there was going to be an audio made, he had to actually have a set of pipes and uh, look as if he was playing them. (laughs) So he he contacted me on the phone uh, to see where he could buy a set of pipes in Melbourne, uh, how long it would take to learn. And um, I said, well, look, you're looking at about nine months. At the time, I I didn't know who Bon Scott was. I'd I'd never heard of them. (laughs) So he uh, went and uh, bought a set of pipes and um, he came down to band practice. Um, We practised at the Brook House down in Albert Park and um, we managed to teach him to look as if he was playing (laughs) and um, the uh, recording went off quite well. So you're telling me that there's hope for me yet that I could could learn to play the bagpipes in nine months? Yes, yes, that's the average, yes. 
Oh, crikey. I've, oh, I've got nine months left in me, surely. Uh, <laughs> my, my, I love the pipes and I, I like to kid myself, Kevin, that it's because I'm of Scottish heritage. My grandfather uh, was born on the island of Ben Becula in the Outer Hebrides. And when he came to Australia, he couldn't speak English. He could only speak Gaelic. Um, yeah. you know, he's about as Scottish as you get. And there's one particular bit of pipe music that was written on and about the island of Ben Becula, which is tiny. Like, it's got a population of about a 1,000, and it's called The Dark Island. Have you ever played The Dark Island? I've heard the tune, oh. but I've never learnt it. Oh, we'll play some here. It's, it is utterly glorious. Do you prefer the sound of a bagpipe on its own or as part of a massed band? They're both very good. I think in a massed band, I think. I remember growing up that you would go to sporting events, you would go to the grand final, certainly you would go to Flemington for the Melbourne Cup, and it was part of the pre-match, pre-race entertainment was for there to be a massed pipe band. And I used to run, for example, at Flemington, I used to run to uh, the rail in order to, to listen to them, but that's more or less gone, hasn't it? Yes. Now, it's interesting that you say that. Um, I played uh, at the Melbourne Cup with the mass band for many, many years. And in 1968, uh, I met my wife there. <laughs> and I might add of the Melbourne Cup in 1968 was Rain Lover. I just scribbled that down. But I'm pleased to add Rain Lover wasn't the only winner that day. (laughs) Well, Rain Lover went on to win again the next year, did you? Oh, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, the next year we got married. The bagpipes are a thing that can be played well and they can be played badly. Is it an easy instrument to play? Well, look, um, any instrument at all that's badly played is woeful. Uh, The player has to be competent and and, um, play well. They require a fair amount of physical effort to play them, which is different, say, to a violin or a piano or that. It, it is important that you that you keep playing. Uh, over the years, um, there's been a lot of improvements in in uh, uh, bagpipes. Um, like when I first started, the the bag itself was made of um, uh, sheepskin or uh, kangaroo skin, and um, if you stop playing for a while. Uh, the bag had to be dressed. Uh, by that I mean you would have to um, make sure that the bag became pliable. Otherwise, um, the bag was quite stiff and and you just couldn't play them. So there was a fair amount of work to be done to get them up and running. Had to take them to the dry cleaners. <laughs> hey, Kevin, tell me, what is your favourite piece of music on the pipes? Oh, look, it, it, it's a simple tune, but it's a tune that, that everybody knows, and that's Scotland the Brave. Have you got a recommendation for me, Kevin? Talk, talking uh, talking about Scottish things and that, 
uh, on New Year's Day uh, up at uh, Maryborough, they have a Highland Games, uh, which has been going for many, many, many years. And, um, you know, there's lots of uh, pod bands there, Highland dancers. Um, they have various uh, breeds of um, Scottish animals and that to look at. And it's a real good day. There's a, the Maryborough gift. Uh, that's that's something I look forward to each year. That is fantastic. You will not believe it. I was Googling yesterday. I'm going to be in the United Kingdom in the middle of June this year, and I searched up things to do in Scotland in uh, in June, and one of the things that came up potentially was the Highland Games near Edinburgh. So uh, I might do the Daily Double, Kevin. I might do the, uh, the Highland Games in Maryborough, and I'll do them in uh, Scotland as well. Thanks for the recommendation. I'm going to do that. Good on you. Thanks, Kevin. Lovely to chat. Same here. Want more Ross Stevenson? Tune in to 3AW Breakfast every weekday from 5.30. This recommendation requires a bit of uh, stiff upper lip. It's about a place, it's about a town in France uh, that is not an easy visit, but it's an important place to visit and anyone who's been there has been touched by it, as indeed I have. I introduce um, Yannick Thoraval. Yannick is an award-winning writer and teacher um, who has also been to this very small village in France um, hi there, Yanni. Hey, Ross. How are you going? Good. Well, I, I'd like to find out how you got to go there. I'll tell you my story quickly. I think it was about 1991. I was in London on holidays and I had a mate who lived in London who said, come with me. I have a friend who owns a farmhouse in Limoges in France. I didn't know where Limoges was. Um, so I went with him. We caught the train from Paris. And he said, while we're down there, we should certainly go and see Oradour Souglan. And I, I said, what are you talking about? It's only a 20-minute drive from uh, Limoges, and we went to Oradour sur Glane, and it is a quite remarkable place that you have been to as well, Yannick. The story, it all happened on June the 10th, 1944. That's right. That's uh, when, you know, the, the German Nazis, the Waffen Panzer divisions, kind of marched into the town. And uh, on this sort of flimsy pretext of uh, there being some, you know, uh, resistance support there, you know, French resistance, uh, they decided to just pretty much wipe out the town and, uh, you know, systematically uh, herded men, women and children into barns and churches and uh, shot them and burned them. So in total, 643 men, women and children were murdered. It is incredible because the 10th of June of 1944, of course, is four days after D-Day. So the 2nd Waffen-SS Panzer Division is rushing to get from the south of France to the north where the D-Day landings have just been made. And they do this thing where, where they kill every man, woman and child in the village, which, as I understand it, is not something that they traditionally did. Like, it is really unusual for them to have done it. And as you say, the speculation is that, what, there was increased resistance activity in the area. And what happened as a result is that they buried all 643 people, put a wall around the city and touched nothing. Nothing has been touched since 1944. 
That's absolutely right. And that's what's so ghostly about the thing is that usually when you go to a, a museum, if you like, it's covered for a start. And there's, you know, things are, you know, in glass and you feel like somewhat removed from, you know, the objects themselves. Whereas here you're strolling through a town that looks remarkably similar to every other little French village still in place today, like that people actually just live in. Uh, Oradour sur Glane, for example, has, you know, three or four hairdressers. This is one of these peculiarities in France is that, you know, these small villages have, you know, many more hairdressers than you think a town of that size would need. And you see it replicated in this little town as well. So it's really this sort of ghostly apparition uh, that you're walking through and you feel like a ghost yourself kind of wandering through this place. And it's deeply, deeply solemn in a way that I've not experienced any other war monument or memorial or even historical place. And the, and it's um, the cars are still rusted in the street. The 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 uh, power lines have sagged and everything's fallen out. And the shop fronts, the glass has fallen out. But nothing has been touched in the last seventy eight years. Um, and. Um, I didn't realise what the French word for remember was until I went to Oradour. Um, and the French word, because there are signs everywhere that simply has this one French word repeated everywhere, and the French word is souvenir, remember. There are signs everywhere, aren't there, just Yannick telling you, remember. That's right. So, souviens-toi, like remember Remember, and there's also which is to sort of like pay your respects, gather your thoughts so that you're really, you know, implored as you walk through this place, not to just, you know, randomly stroll through, that you're really stopping in these places and looking into people's houses, looking into shop fronts and cafes where you can still see pots and pans and bicycles leaned up against walls as if these people have kind of just vanished. Uh, I understand that, you know, going to uh, Hiroshima, you know, in, in Japan is a similar kind of experience where you, you kind of get a, a sense of something preserved. Um, but obviously the nature of that uh, wiped things out in a way that it didn't here. There's a, there's a definite sense of you are in a town and you can see the things that people left behind. And so, yeah, you are asked, like, you know, to, to, to contemplate right here and now. This is a place where, and it'll tell you, Two men were murdered and burned. Here, three women were murdered and burned. So remember and pay your respects. And, um, and it's the cumulative effect of that as well that, that kind of weighs on you. Because when you look at a war memorial or even try and contemplate something like the atrocity of World War II, I mean, you've got, you know, 70 to 85 million people dead, depending on how you, you know, do the accounting. How do you grasp something like that? It's almost completely impossible. And so this town, with 643 men, women, and children, that only puts it into some kind of tangible, manageable perspective, which, um, you know, person by person, you're kind of getting a sense of. And at some point in the village, as you kind of mosey through, there is a, um, a little, it's a very, very small, but very intimate um, museum where individual artifacts that these people were you know, wearing, we're talking about glasses and wallets and keys and these kinds of things, and personal items that are displayed there. And that just brings, brings them you know, back to life in a way so that you can contemplate their death. And it, I guess the scale makes it so um, touching and the, um, understandable. 
There, um, I don't know what it was like when you went there, but uh, I went, and I'm guessing it was about 1991. There's no admission process to to get into the village. The village is simply there, and it has been yeah. left there, and anyone is free to walk through it. There's no admission process. That's right. It's not like you, you know, enter and exit through the gift shop. You know, no. it's uh, it's very tasteful. So you do just because it's it's basically on the spot where a, a new village has has grown up where people actually live and it's just adjacent to this this village and so you you just wander from the bakery of the of the new village into the the open gates of the old uh, and i've often wondered you know for these people who live in the village what's it like to, to live next to this this place that has such a significance does it does it affect their day to day or are they you know kind of gotten over it or whatever but but yeah it is just um it is just there um but as you say um, it's, it's, you know, 20 minutes drive from Limoges, but Limoges is not one of these towns that, you know, you, you sort of readily go to. It used to be like, back in the day, it was famous for, for its porcelain or whatever, but, um, you know, it's, it's not like it's a day trip out of Paris. Well, I do also glance. You got to get to Limoges first, which itself is, you know, the closest sort of city that is on the tourist track would be say Bordeaux, but it's quite a ways from there as well. So you got to want to go there. But I think we're both saying is that it's well worth the trip. Oh, 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 my goodness. It will stick with you forever. Very few Australians, I feel confident in asserting, very few Australians would ever have heard of Oradour sur Glan, which means Oradour on the Glan is like a creek, right? Um, yeah, that's right. Um, but you are of French heritage. Is it storied, <clears throat> pardon me, in French culture? Is it a part of, say, something that all French school children would be taught about? Absolutely. Um, so my father, for example, who's from Rennes, you know, in the north of France, and you know, sort of vaguely within the region of, uh, uh, you know, being able to travel to Oradour sur Glane. So all the school kids would go there, uh, you know, and, and and it was part of their curriculum. And um, so, you know, he remembers it somewhat differently as having kind of been forced to go there. Uh, the way that I suppose, you know, uh, Australian or Canadian school children are forced to go to, you know, a shrine of remembrance for, you know, Anzacs or so forth. Um, but I don't think that the the, the, the the fact that he was forced to go made it any less memorable, right? It's just that he's got childhood memories of it, whereas I have adult memories of it. When you see the concept of an occupation of a country as depicted in movies and the like, what happens is that maybe the SS, it's this SS Panzer Division, the SS go into a village, separate the men and the children, try to work out who's working with the resistance and execute them. How did they go into the village and kill every single person in it, from babies to, to you know, people in their 90s or, I don't know, maybe 100? How, where did that dehumanisation come from? Yeah, so this dehumanization is a really interesting one. Um, and, you know, that was the, the piece that you mentioned that I wrote for the um, a financial review. That what I was really looking into is, yeah, what is it that motivates people to do this? Is it, is it just like, this, as you say, a kind of dehumanization? This kind of, you know, pure disassociated hatred that you can just sort of, you know, kill off people as if they were, you know, bugs? Or is there something even more sinister going on, right? And so I came across this fellow, Paul Bloom, who's a Yale psychology professor, and he suggested something that I found even more chilling. Um, he suggested that what happens sometimes is that people um, aren't monsters, right, in the sense that they're kind of just unaware and uncaring about people's feelings and murder them at will. I mean, there are people like that. We're talking about serial killers and things like this. But 
in the main, when we're talking about your average person on the street and their capacity to do evil, he suggests, this guy, um, Paul Bloom, that it's actually our capacity for empathy, our ability to kind of think about other people's needs and values that enables us to deny them those values, mm-hmm. right? So if we want to be truly cruel, we can say, okay, this is what you care about. I'm going to deny you that thing to inflict that cruelty. And you think about it, isn't this why divorces sometimes get so ugly? Because um, the people know exactly which buttons to push, what what matters to the person. Yep. And so when properly motivated, they can really you know, put the screws in and twist hard. And, and perhaps that's what's going on in a situation like this. Um, you're just working in isolation and you've, you, you, you know, you're, you're taking out every aggression you have on this person you somehow hold responsible. Um, Yannick, as I said, you are the only the second other person in my life uh, that I've met who has ever been to Oradour Sur Glan. Um, you know, it's a hell of a thing to share, but I think we both agree it is an, is an amazing place to visit. And, you know, it's not on the well-worn tourist track, but uh, it is well worth doing. And I thank you for talking to me about it. And I hope you have something to rec- recommend me. Yeah. So I'm going to, you know, we've been talking very seriously here about, you know, a very serious topic. And, you know, <laughs> I'm going to switch gears a little bit and go from, you know, highbrow to kind of middle or lowbrow. I'm actually going to suggest uh, the show Gogglebox. I don't know if you're familiar with this show, but I think it's, you know, it's an absurd yeah. proposition, right? You've got people watching other people watch TV. But somehow, <laughs> the segment of population that you're looking at, I don't know, I think it's just like walking through a hall of mirrors. You're seeing yourself and Australian culture from all these different weird angles. It's a, it's a ripper of a show, and I highly recommend it. Good on you, because you know what I've, my experience is? I see the promos for, the, for Gogglebox. It makes me laugh, yet I haven't gone, I haven't crossed the bridge to actually go and watch it, and now I will. Yannick? No, I want, I want to hear how that goes. Good man. Lovely to chat. You too. Take care. Today's episode gives you something to watch, something to listen to, somewhere to visit. Thanks for listening. Uh, I hope you're finding some good different ways to spend your time. If you've got something you'd like to recommend to me, please email rossrecommends at nine.com.au. That's N-I-N-E. Rossrecommends at nine.com.au. Thanks. Tune in to Ross Stevenson and Russell Howcroft weekdays from 5.30 on 3AW Breakfast.